0: Rea, and welcome to Breaking Out of Breaking In, a practical filmmaking podcast about taking your creative career into your own hands and making great work to get seen without playing the Hollywood game or at least while changing the rules.
1: Hi, I'm Brie Castellini, your other co-host, and today we're breaking down the craft of production design, among other things, with guest Raymond Carr. Before we dive in, remember that we l- release bonus content for each and every episode of this podcast over on patreon.com slash breakingoutpod if you want to support us, and get yourself even more info and resources. But without further ado, welcome Raymond!
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: We're so glad you're here. Raymond and I met because we were connected via the Stareable Fest folks to do an event um, at their first Los Angeles event. And I had such a great time talking to him and was so fascinated by his work in production design and puppeteering and sci-fi that we knew we had to get him on the podcast. So Raymond, introduce yourself a little bit. Who are you? What do you make?
2: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> such existential questions at the top. Yeah, yeah I am a freelance artist. I'm a filmmaker and production designer i am also a creature effects puppeteer uh working with the jim henson company as well as other production companies around town and specifically you know making my own content with my production company ninja puppet productions we build props and sceneries and also make uh, films when i can and the film that i was out there for *Stairboat*, was a film called Writers that uh, has been doing its festival run. It's kind of at the end of the festival run and now can be found on Roku, thanks to Starable. We've won some awards with them, which was great. So yeah, Joyriders is a story about three kids from the hood who accidentally find an alien spaceship and take it on a joyride through Atlanta and eventually have to come back home and realize what they're going to do with their newfound abilities and treasures. So yeah, it turned out really great with the help of a couple hundred people from the Atlanta area and around the world because we also participated in Seed and Spark for a crowdfunding thing. So yeah, it's been a, a wild ride.
1: Very cool stuff. Very yeah, cool. we're definitely going to get into Riders and everything about that. But I, I want to start zooming out a little bit. So how did you originally get into production design, creativity, your design uh, and, and all this cool visual stuff?
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, that's always the big question. How did I get myself into this mess?
0: <laughs>
2: I mean, I uh, was a theater kid, was planning on doing theater and specifically doing puppets. I'd, I'd, I'd been doing puppets with my family and theater for most of my life. And then I started doing uh, productions out here in Atlanta, where I am based. There's a place called the Center for Puppetry Arts, which is the country's largest puppetry theater and museum. And they have the largest collection of like the Jim Henson works and a lot of other amazing things. Multi million dollar facility, which so I highly recommend everybody check out when they get a chance. Also, I have an exhibit now. Uh, they're featuring my work in their collection, uh, a part of the museum, which is cool. That's amazing. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. So, uh, yeah, I was doing theater and then I, I realized that the rest of my castmates at the age of 17, all had like master's degrees in theater and everything. And I was like, well, maybe I shouldn't go to college for theater, try something else. Um, and so I started going, do switched over to film and uh, got involved. Uh, was lucky enough to find a, a, a local theater that had a film collective called Dailies. And it was just a bunch of film nerds who wanted to make some films and our, our our motto was uh dailies was a safe place to fail. Uh and we made some pretty good content that came out of that. It was we gave ourselves film short film challenges and we'd share resources and uh have different forms of collaborations throughout the uh filmmaking process for each quarter. And from that we made a film called The Signal, which which went to Sundance and did really well. And then the relationships that formed out of that, uh we made another film called VHS which is a whole found footage, uh, horror series, a bunch of other stuff. That's kind of how I, that became my film school, really, that group of people and those folks. Yeah. And uh, because I had a theater background and I could build stuff, people were just like, oh, you're art department. And I'm like, I don't know what that is, but okay. So <laughs> I was just everybody's art department in our, our short film collective. And that, and then I ended up joining the IATSE union and uh, started Going down that rabbit hole.
1: That's amazing. Okay, cool. And so, at what point did you get like officially trained for puppeteering and and working with the Henson Company?
2: So yeah, I, I started working with the Henson Company in 2015. They had a uh, a series of workshops that was just where they were just looking for new talent, and so I was able to. Uh, they had. A, couple hundred people, like 500 people apply for that. And they selected some folks out of that. And so that started my relationship with them. And, uh, you know, I had a background already with animatronics and creature effects. Working with uh, Cartoon Network, Adult Swim, Nick Jr., a bunch of other stuff. So I already had a background in all that, and so that's kind of how I was able to move forward working with them in some of their more technologically sophisticated programming. So uh, yeah, it's been a they're they're a really great company to work for, uh, work with when I can, and they they do make cool stuff.
1: Totally. No, that's amazing. Okay. So when obviously you're like a very tactile person, you can build things, you have a background in it. And having seen your work, I can see how like tactile your design sense is. So when somebody is bringing you in on a project that's not yours, like they're just hiring you as a, a production designers an art department head, what are like the first things you're looking for in the script in your meeting? Like where, where do you start having that conversation with a new team?
2: You know, it depends on the scale of the thing. I, You know, I'll just speak to the indie space specifically. Sure. It's, you know, it's all in the script. Usually, hopefully on the indie level, you've had some sort of conversations with the director and producers on what you are trying to achieve. And people usually come to me when there is the more, the weirder stuff. And, uh, you know, they're not going to get me to, you know, design a posh, hotel or something like that sure. they'll, they'll have me do the uh the trash compactor and other shit like that <laughs> so you know we try and synthesize uh, the look and feel of the project uh pinterest is my best friend you know just putting together just mood boards as much as possible just to try and get a sense of what the uh, the director is looking for you know it's not this it's that kind of a thing and a lot of times knowing what they don't want is As informative as anything else. So outside of the script, it's really just trying to narrow down some sort of visual language for the tone. I mean, tone is another big thing, obviously, not just like, is it a comedy or drama, but like, is it, uh, is this world our world is it a magical world or what levels of reality are we dealing with on this kind of space so yeah that's kind of where we go and then from there you know we kind of you know particularly on the indie level we the we we shoot for the moon but then we have these small concessions that you're constantly making so it i like to bake the those concessions into the system at the beginning meaning. If it is a story that takes place in the future, maybe it's not the cleanest portion of the future, or maybe it's a different section of the future where we're showcasing, we're only showcasing a small area of it. And then, you know, the wide shots can be visual effects or miniatures or what have you or something like that. Making sure that we're being strategic about what we're showing because presumably the budget isn't fully there. So, and then also getting in on the ground floor with the script and, and and saying what can be done and and what we could do that might not look as good as they want. So maybe we cut the uh, flying saucer and skyscraper and all that kind of stuff you know
1: what kind of uh questions are you asking from people who maybe don't have the the same like production design vocabulary because that's always something especially in indies when you're working with someone new where it's like they don't really know what to ask for they have an idea of their story but they don't know how to ask you to bring it to life so like what are you using in those conversations to kind of pull it out of them
2: you know i think it, it has a lot to do with their frame of reference Okay. You know, obviously we work in cinema, so trying to get a sense of the kind of cinematic language that they're trying to use or cinematic references that they're trying to use. So we talk, speaking broadly and then narrowing it down. So, you know, it's not Spielberg, it's Cronenberg or uh, it's not, you know, it's not it's, it's Evil Dead Sam Raimi's not Marvel Sam Raimi, you know, this kind of stuff trying to get those ideas narrowed down like i said just trying to put all of that information synthesize that information as best possible and also like i said having those visual references on mood boards and and all that kind of stuff is is definitely key
1: that's really interesting yeah. so what are what are the things you're looking for when building a mood board is it like colors textures like what what for you makes a complete vision board
2: you know it really has to do with I mean, it all starts with the script. So, you know, I think that I would not cast a too wide of a net. I would generally, like, it It, it has to do, you know, a lot of indies take place in a handful of sets or maybe one or two sets. So we'll focus on that specifically. And when we talk about, okay, it's a mess, it's a messy set, you know, what does that look like? And so that helps narrow down those kinds of conversations. Or if it's there's a hero prop or a hero set piece, like a a time machine or something like that, trying to figure out what those things are. So it's less about like casting a wide net for these mood boards and trying to make some sort of synthesis of specific things that are being featured. And this, you know, at the same time, there's a big push for distinct uh, visual styles in um, short films. Like the classic is, Wes Anderson, like everybody wants to try and do Wes Anderson. So that's going to end up on a lot of people's mood boards, which is helpful because that is very distinct. And so, you know, I might pull that, but I'm not going to pull something out of Darjeeling Unlimited. Uh, I might pull something that's just like a screenshot of a, one of the sets that he has. And, and as far as like color palettes and all that kind of stuff. So it can be anything from like figuring out the color palette of a character and narrowing that down and have that be informed or it can be like said something that is specific to a uh, to a, a hero prop or a hero set piece as well
1: okay so what kind of things were on the joyriders mood board do you remember
2: yeah i definitely worked on it a lot that was anytime i sent the script to somebody i also sent the mood board for these things so it had a lot to do with, uh, you know, it's alien. So this is inspired by a lot of, you know, 80s, 90s sci-fi adventures, stuff like *Why of the Navigator* and things of that nature. So for me, also, uh, I when I when you say alien, that can mean so many different things. So specifically, our project had things like a uh, uh, Guy, Geiger from the designer of uh, *Aliens* you know, that kind of black organic feel, but still had some sort of sense of order to it. And also it had things like close-ups of the coral reef or coral, you know, to kind of give, or a a beehive, an empty beehive where you could see the pockets of the honeycombs or, you know, a close-up of a leaf, you know, kind of just seeing these patterns of texture that I wanted to uh, put on the walls of this alien spaceship. And then we had other things where we built the miniature of the spaceship. So it also helps for me because I can put together, I can just like grab a bunch of images from all over the place. And then once I have them in a file, I can start deleting images that I don't like. Or sometimes I'll take the tail of one spaceship and like Photoshop it onto another, you know. And, And sometimes it is just a matter of having these images in front of you. Printing them out or just having them on your desktop and just staring at them for a while or just leave them there and then start removing some of those things. Yeah, that, that, those kinds of things were, were mostly the things that I, I was looking for. Oh, and then the other thing, one element of the spaceship that we built, because uh, we built the entire set, was I was trying to think about how to describe it and how I wanted to do it. And so I was looking at, you know, traditional sci-fi spaceships and what have you, like Star Trek, Star Wars, all that stuff. And then it dawned on me that uh, instead of trying to utilize all that space, the most analogous thing that we have now are submarines. So that have like a lot of uh, texture on the walls and everything with tubes and cranks and, and dials and all that kind of stuff. And also they're very claustrophobic, but they still feel lived in and everything like that. So uh, submarines were a big inspiration for our spaceship.
1: Very cool stuff. Um, So let's talk about how you how you built it, like what were what, you know, from the the theater flats on what what went into actually putting together this submarine inspired coral inspired spaceship materials wise?
2: Yeah, so uh, I realized that I'd never, I wanted to make sure that the audience didn't have a clear vision of the full geography of the spaceship, meaning that I wasn't going to get any super wide shots of the spaceship at any point, or we're going to be shooting in the corners uh, and all that kind of stuff, just because I didn't, I, I, I didn't want to, ha- we didn't have the, the full size that we wanted, obviously. So I didn't want to have them feel like they knew how big or small the space was. And so it could potentially be endless. So we built a, I think it was a uh, 14 by 20, maybe a bit bigger on either side, uh, uh, set that was in this just relatively small soundstage with the psych wall and everything like that. And we just got some theatrical flats. So I knew that uh, we rented this space that we were going to shoot it uh, on it. And we had a finite amount of time. And so uh, through Seed&Spark, there were a lot of people who just were in our database at this point. I was like, all right, anybody who wants to just come out for a day and help, we're just going to raise this barn, put these flats up, and we'll go from there. Uh, so we had a couple dozen people come out on the day, which was great, spending a couple hours with us. And uh, we got flats donated, used flats donated from... Uh, old shows and theater pieces and stuff because we knew that we were going to be uh, painting these flats. And also the big texture of the ship was the stuff that's uh, basically expanding insulation foam, the kind of stuff that you can find at any kind of hardware store or Home Depot. The, the brand name is uh, Great Stuff. Basically, just a spray. You spray it any kind of crack or whatever, and then after a couple of minutes, it expands into uh, and hardens into foam. And so the idea, and we got an industrial sprayer of that stuff. So the idea was that uh, we put up the flats, secure them all, put a roof on there, and then I would go in and just spray it all down with this industrial foam, let that dry overnight, and then come in the next morning and carve into the foam and paint the foam black. The other thing that I specifically wanted to do and feel free to stop me because I'm rambling. No, but, uh, hey, this,
1: this is this is the nerd series that we're doing yeah, yeah, yeah. for our craft series, nerd out, dude. Like, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah,
2: So one of the other things that I wanted to do was that I wanted instead of making you know a lot of sci-fi uh, shows like Star Trek, it, it, it can be very clean. It can very mm-hmm. be very bright, which means that you can see all of the uh, the nooks and crannies and cracks of and uh, of the project. So I wanted it to be dark, but not dark enough to where it's it's hard to see anything or it looks like a mistake or anything like that. So my idea was to have the base be this foam that was going to be darker tones, blacks and purples and dark blues washed all over it. And then I wanted to make sure that it was glossy. And the reason for the gloss is that the gloss would then catch the light and kind of dance that light around. So even if it was in the deep background, it wasn't just full black drop off to where it felt like nothing or they're behind a black void. You could still see texture, but you could see the texture from the crevices where the where the, the um, gloss kind of went over. So we did uh, a couple of things to achieve that. We got obviously all the paint was gloss, uh, which is generally what you don't do when you're building sets for anything because the DP will hate you because they want to be able to control the light. So we usually do matte. So we did gloss for all of our uh, background paint. And then we uh, got some silicone and just caulking silicone, stuff that you get at any hardware store. And caulking silicone, we got the clear stuff. If you've ever used it, it hardens, but it still has a level of texture to it. And it also is a little rubbery. So we basically just put a bunch in our our hand and just like rubbing it all, uh, all over the place, like Vaseline almost. And then it would harden, so it would have the feel of almost Vaseline, but it would be uh, hard to touch. Um, So it wasn't getting everywhere. So we'd use that um, not over every surface, but particularly where we knew light was going to be hitting, just to kind of, like I said, help uh, reflect the lights on that. And then from there, we also drilled holes into the set and backlit it and kind of covered it with basically like shower curtains. So it had a level of light that felt organic, but still, you know, like there was some sort of yeah a button or, or light source coming from the, the ship. My idea there was that I didn't want to have uh, a lot of sources in the ship that we were constantly moving, light sources in the ship that we were constantly moving. I wanted sure. the ship to be fully lit through 360 throughout the entire production. So we weren't moving lights around and all that kind of stuff, which obviously everybody knows is something that takes time. Um So that's why, like I said, we were built, we were cutting holes into the, the ship and then backlighting those holes Um, And put diffusion uh, on those little holes, which could be actual diffusion or even like the shower curtain. And we knew where the majority of the action was going to take place. So we were able to be strategic about uh, those kinds of things.
1: You built a a mini like cardboard version of the like ship console, right? Is that where you did a lot of your blocking? Like you built that out and like made your shot list based on the miniature or? You
2: know, I built the um, I built the miniature and it was think it was like a one inch scale. Uh, of the spaceship,, uh, that's what I was trying to do, one inch scale, meaning one inch for every one foot. Yeah. so I built that out of cardboard. That was partially just for the crew that we had coming in for the arrangement of how we were going to build the uh, flats because we had such a limited time on that. So I did a little bit of storyboarding based on that, but not much. the The boarding was, you know, honestly, like just because, the ship was relatively small and everything i only boarded the visual effects shot um the stuff that i knew was a little harder to explain i and also just the style of the film i wanted it to be very grounded so there's not a whole lot of like steady cam sh- uh shots or whatever i wanted it to be very handheld frenetic at times so it wasn't a whole lot of use in boarding too much and i also like i wanted a lot of improv with these these uh kids They're, I say kids but they were young adults <laughs> um <laughs> <clears throat> they look like kids and they're playing kids but yeah so i wanted them to have the freedom to bounce around the set and to discover it too so yeah that was uh, so uh, like i said i just mostly boarded the uh visual effects shots i knew that i was going to need got it
1: And so uh, obviously, especially if you're relying a little bit on improv and you have built a thing for them to interact with, how did you ensure that like the set pieces that they were allowed to interact with, buttons, levers, that kind of stuff, like didn't fall apart on them if, you know, they unexpectedly grabbed something, but were also still coming in like under budget. Obviously, you couldn't build a working interior spaceship. So like, how did you balance not making it look cheap, but making it durable enough that they could interact
2: It had to do with, I knew what they were going to interact with, you know. There are definitely things in there that if they had touched them or leaned up against them, it wouldn't have fallen apart or they would have fell through. So
1: there were no-no zones on the ship?
2: (laughs) There were definitely no-no zones. There were, yes, no zones. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there were definitely places where it was like, yeah, touch that, don't touch that. Uh, so, yeah, once you know that, then you can just bake it into the system. And also, like, they, these are the durability of it. It's not like theater where the thing has to last for multiple productions. It just needs to last for the day that it's being shot and the shot that they're touching it for. So there was uh, a level of ease on that. But the thing that they moved the most were the uh, the controllers for how they flew. The ship. They, I wanted those, you know, strong enough to where they could yank them around and 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 all that kind of stuff throughout. So it, 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 so that I, I spent. We spent more time building and designing the uh, flight console than more than anything else.
1: What was that made out of? Uh,
2: so I'll just try and. Visually describe them. The, there were, I I wanted them to be unique in how most alien spaceships are spaceships in general controlled. Uh, the idea being that this is an alien that is multi, multi armed alien that can grab different things themselves, kind of like an octopus. Uh, But because of that, these three kids needed to work together to operate the ship. So the, there's two main controllers on either side. Uh, which kind of looks like a bicycle handle connected to like a spinal vertebrae almost that goes out of the ground and go up. So it basically makes a big L with a handle at the end of it. And that's on one side and then uh, mirrored on the other side. And then the center piece there is a, a, a large black bulb that is covered in this organic goo. It kind of looks like a, uh, almost looks like a tumor actually <laughs> with light coming out of it. And so that was connected to a piece of PVC that was embedded into the ground um, with a spring in the center of it and a light shining underneath the PVC into the bulb. And I pulled holes in the bulb and into the PVC. So it was kind of have this glow. And that was a, um, a multicolored LED bulb so it could change colors and everything like that. So because of the spring inside of it, the actor could just grab it and like a basketball basically and just move it around. As if she's almost massaging it, and that's kind of how the, the, the ship works. Yeah, that, that, yeah, it was, a, it was, a, a, I think it gave a, a pretty good effect to
0: it.
1: No, it totally did. It, it made me think of the, the Cylon ships in Battlestar Galactica when they have to fly the ones that are like run by the pseudo organic Cylons and like oh, yeah. have to like put their hands in like their guts yeah, 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 and yeah. Like, figure out their neural pathways and stuff. Yeah. That's always what it made me think of.
2: Yeah, no, I definitely wanted to feel gross. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Mission accomplished. Yeah. So uh, do you do you think that there are any misconceptions that indie or mainstream film people have about the production design department, the art design department, things that you've run into where you're like, how do you think that? What?
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. If you don't build, I realized that like I grew up in an era, we grew up in an era where people would fix things. Uh, and that just sounds too much like an an old fuddy-duddy you know (laughs) uh but like if you had a walkman or a tape recorder and it stopped working you might take a screwdriver and like try and get the tape out and you know or blow in it or your video games you blew in and try to clean it out with a Q-tip or something like that or just take it off to see if you know the fan's working or something like that and people don't really have that mentality anymore and there's also this we do live in a magical era of 3d printers and just Alchemy with technology, where it feels like you can make anything. So, if there are elements where I am just fascinated when people are are asking for something, and it's like, you, that's you do know people make that. That's not just, you know, elves making these at night. Like, these things take time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the whole expression cheap, fast, the good, but you only get two. Sure. Yeah. So, I think that the time that certain things, take is always surprising to me so i would say that any advice that i would give is that if you did have a project that had like a a really cool prop or a really cool set piece or costume or what have you spend the time on that focus on that and don't expect that to be turned out overnight because uh if it is it's probably not going to be any good in fact you know those the the uh, the consoles for how the spaceships are controlled Those were specifically given to two people, and that's all they did on my short film was just build those things. And they had the time to do those things, and they came out looking great. And I didn't have to think about them. Once I gave them over, I was able to do other things. And they weren't getting pulled into doing other things, and they didn't feel like their time was being abused or whatever. They just got to do this cool thing that they were really excited about. So I think that... when you're delegating your workspace, you know, it's it's entirely possible to just, like, have one person do that one thing, your hero prop or set piece. Our costume piece, and have them just focus on that.
1: Yeah, I definitely will say when I was new to film, it was surprising to me how many people were like made up the art department, especially on on you know sci-fi or horror. Some people would you know that how delegated things could get mm-hmm. was surprising to me. Like, yeah, this person is in, exclusively in charge of the console. <laughs> this person is exclusively in charge of like these two props. They are the daddy of these props. They are the ones you go to if you need these two props. But it makes sense when you really think about it, because how can one person possibly keep track of all of those things and be responsible for maintaining all of those things?
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: What are some tricks that you've learned over the course of this, knowing that some people underestimate how much time it takes, certainly how much money it takes that you have used to like, not not fake your budget, but like, basically, what are what are some tricks that you have learned to stretch your budget further than it maybe should have been stretched and still make something right?
2: I think that the best thing you can do for your budget in regards to art department is make your your art department intentional from the beginning, meaning that if you are thinking about the look of it and what the art is, department is going to be doing and all that kind of stuff as you are writing the script you know, then it's kind of like your visual effects, you know, if you are an independent filmmaker, you are probably thinking about your visual effects in a very minimalist kind of way, a very intentional kind of way, you hopefully are anyway, you're not just writing all willy nilly, not knowing how you're going to achieve anything. So I think if you are able to think about them from the beginning, and think about like, actually what this stuff might look like, and how it might feel. And then also, like, I just had a friend of mine uh, who's making a short film and she's still in the script process. And she called me up and be like, Hey, I have an idea for this thing. How would I do it? And we kind of talked through it and she's going to be able to put it in her film because she was talking about if we had talked through it. And I was like, don't even think about that. That's crazy. (laughs) She would probably not put it in there. So I think that just on the script level. Don't
1: write yourself into a corner before you know what's achievable.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Are there other like more tactile like shortcuts that you've found? So like obviously the the insulation foam is a really cool way of adding texture with, you know, pretty quickly. But like, are there other things that you've learned that like, hey, if you do, if you use this, you can substitute for a more expensive thing
2: i think that the the main thing i do is modify as opposed to build so if you have a piece you know uh, so a lot of the things that the kids were touching in the spaceship uh, where they have to they had a whole montage where they're trying to fix the ship and they're just like turning knobs and all that kind of stuff i got went to the thrift store and bought a bunch of old toys and mechanical toys and took them apart i used the guts of these toys or i used the, you know, the head of a little bop it thing and just <laughs> use the, the core of it. And I painted that. And then I added some servos and different kind of GAC on top of that glued that together. So I think it's more, I would think of your art department, especially in the genre space as more collage art than fabrication art or like, uh, creating it from the scratch. You know, it, it seems kind of obvious, but so much of what we do is. Just trying to see how to create something from something that already exists. That's always going to be uh, the easier way for you to go.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes a <laughs> lot of sense. Yeah, as someone who is not as like visually inclined when it comes to projects, but who can appreciate it, I'm always curious how you manage to sort of like thread the needle between you know something looking like genuinely futuristic or like real versus. Painting a, a toy from a thrift shop. Like, how, how are you making sure that you're you're ending up on, like, inventive and complicated when in fact it's like a wheel from a toy and, you know, something like that? Like, how, how are you ma- making sure that it doesn't look like what it actually is beyond paint, I guess?
2: You know, a lot of it has to do with how it's being shot, too. Oh, okay. This is what I'm talking way. about, like, getting these conversations in from the beginning. So going back to our set, we use a lot of the Astero light tubes, uh, which are these color-changing tubes that you can control on your iPad or your iPhone or what have you. And uh, they're used in music videos. Anytime you see a light tube in, in, in the set, it's these tubes. So uh, that. Part of that is because we wanted to control where we were putting our focus on and also have those light pieces be a part of the set. Um, and that's what's drawing the eye and making lens flares and all that kind of stuff to mask the, the cheapness, frankly, of our set. So, you know, I think that a lot of what you do as far as if you know you're going to have you have a, a set that you really love, but it, it's not going to look the way you want it to do. You want it to, you can work with your DP about where the light is going to be focusing on, you know, maybe it's darker in one corner or another or maybe, uh, like I said you you aren't shooting these big wide shots, you are making it more confined or if there is a wide shot, maybe that wide shot is only in a a relatively small area. In regards to like props, you know, maybe if it is uh, a piece, uh, some sort of sci-fi prop or what have you, you don't see it that much or you just see it for a second or 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 something to that effect so i i think that that is how we see a thing is is important and also like just leaning into that aesthetic you know if if it looks cheap but it looks like it's intentionally cheap then your audience buys that if you set a tone Mm. for your film that allows a certain kind of look then you're going to be able to to get away with things more easily than that, you know. So I think you you just have to let your audience know what kind of movie you're watching and what kind of movie they're watching and then uh, go from there.
1: That makes sense. I will also say weight is a big thing that we didn't consider a lot. My first project was, like, a zombie apocalypse project, and we had a lot of fake weaponry. And the thing that always looked the most fake was not the fact that it was a plastic machete, but the fact that it was, like, a weightless machete. Mm. And so something we had to do a lot was figure out ways to, like, either literally weight the object so that the actor looked like they were holding something real, or have to, like, be really conscious about the way we were moving it to make it appear like it held more weight. Because I think weightless thing like you know the coffee cup that everyone hates in in tv shows where there's obviously no liquid yeah. in the cup people can tell that kind of stuff so weight and the appearance of weight i've found is a big element of making something look quote-unquote realistic
2: yeah definitely you know and it's also like i think that i can always tell aged paint or aged makeup where where it's like this mm. wall or this prop has just it's supposed to look old, but really it just has like some paint on it. So sure. Uh, making sure that when you are aging something that it blends well things of that nature, I, I think that the hardest thing to do is make something look that that, that makes something look good that has a lot of straight edges, a straight lines, you know, trying to make a realistic cell phone or communication device or something like that. That has, you know, you look at your Apple products or what have you; they're all like very sleek, very clean, and all that kind of stuff. Or a futuristic motorcycle, like very sleek, very clean. Those that it can be very difficult, and so having a little bit more chaos and a little more intentionality within that helps blend and helps us understand. It helps us realize that it, it it it's real, but it also doesn't look as fake because your eyes aren't focusing on the like single monolith or these clean edges and all that kind of stuff
1: yeah that makes sense it also is probably helpful when you have a like comprehensive aesthetic where it's not like there's one element that's like a little chaotic and more curvy and then everything else is sleek it's like commit to your aesthetic make everything match this style and then it looks like a style rather than (laughs) they just didn't have this one thing
2: Right. Yeah, definitely.
1: And that makes sense, going all the way back to the script and and your mood boards and making sure everything's consistent. Yeah, I you mean, planning? absolutely. <laughs> Make, yeah, <any> people plan. <laughs> oh <my goodness.
2: laughs> you know, and I think that as a director, I think especially if you don't have an uh, an uh, eye, I think you have to em- embrace your creatives that you are bringing on, and so and saying. Yes, and to a lot of things, or just being like, "You know, that's not what I originally had in mind, but we can do it because it looks cool, or I think that that you're telling me that that's achievable, what which what I had in mind is not, or what I had in mind is achievable, what would look like shit. So being able to have that flexibility and get, if you are able to get a talented person involved, letting go of any other kind of idea that you had, and just let them have fun with it because you know if I'm working on an indie project that's, and there's a specific thing that we want to do, I'm not. It's it's more difficult if I'm trying to uh, recreate this very specific thing that the director had in mind from the beginning and had sketches and designs and all that kind of stuff. Because I might not have the resources or even ability to like make this photorealistic thing that they have in mind you know the better idea is to say all right what do i have and what can i do and give you options based on that as opposed to this this thing that you had in mind that may not be uh, the end-all be-all or the that important to the story you know so yeah just finding those compromises and those um, uh collaboratives moments with your designers is very important.
1: Yeah. And I think that's something that comes up a lot in conversations with crew where, especially when you're talking about like a writer director, they get so married to the idea in their head that they forget Mm -hmm. that just because it's their idea and their story doesn't mean it's the right idea. And a lot Mm -hmm. of times people get so wrapped up in like their original idea that they forget that a different idea, even if it fundamentally changes like the foundation for them actually can go somewhere. Like there's, there's a lot of like, I feel like pearl clutching of, no, this is the original idea. We have to stick to this. Otherwise the story doesn't make sense. And it's like, really, or can we change one line of dialogue and it's actually fine. So letting go and trusting your team, I think is a good takeaway for not just this conversation, but a lot of conversations we tend to have on this podcast.
2: Yeah. Right. Right. I think that on the indie level, Uh, full collaboration is required there's nothing worse than having being on indie level and having a director that is too married to their ideas and not willing to budge because then it's like well why don't you just do it yourself or (laughs) yeah (laughs) you can't afford to to do it that way so yeah
0: totally yeah I'm actually uh, in early development for my next feature which is a creature feature and so this like, whole conversation has really been exciting for me because that's kind of on my mind. But I'm not at the point where I'm like, I have the funding in place and I'm crewing up yet. And so I'm sort of avoiding trying to design too much on my own because I really do want that collaborator who has that skill set and like will bring their own creativity to it and sort of take what I see in my head and also bring in their own thing and we will create something
2: together uh, but at the same time I wouldn't say that you could do your own if you if you feel like you do design or you have an ability to i think that it's valuable because then it gives people a sense of what direction to go you know mm. even if you do have like a full design that you like it can, you can be like this is it's very informative because there's also the inverse which is I don't want a director that has no idea where they're going or just wants totally. me to do all the heavy lifting on that kind of stuff so if you are if you have and it's also excites people if you have a just a really badass design or if you just know somebody who just like is a good artist has no like fabrication skills but just like sketches really cool and you're just inspired by their work you'd be like yo let me can you get like just whip together like this monster and that's going to be my calling card because then people have an idea of like what you are reaching for even if you don't eventually achieve it and it also excites people you know it excites people about the project itself because this is what we're trying to do and then knowing that your uh, the eventual outcome will have a lot of flexibility and just be able to like go down a whole different uh, rabbit hole but i think that yeah the idea of You're not just selling somebody on your script. You're selling somebody on the cinematic experience. At the end of the day, people just want to work on cool shit. Totally, yeah.
1: So what would would you tell Christina to put on her Pinterest board, Raymond?
0: Well, I will say I do have (laughs) a mood board already. And I do have a lot of like, it's more of this and not this. And I do have like monsters from specific movies that are like, this is the direction and not this direction. Yeah. Um, but I have, I have been hesitant to like, what I was thinking about that, like, do I hire someone to sketch out a monster for me? Or is that, will I get too married to that and then find out I can't quite do that? You know, that's kind of been my fear there.
2: I mean, look, I think that that that's a personal question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that I think the value of having a, an original monster, if it feels truly original, if you are actually able to collaborate with uh, a sketch artist or a 3d designer whoever you you come out with and be like this is something that's really cool then they it, like i said it excites other people and then it's up to you to know that that is not necess- you might get a percentage of you might get 50 percent of that mm-hmm. you know or you might be able to realize that you can achieve that and just shoot it in darkness or shoot it just a portion of it or you know um, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. So rarely do we see the monsters that we truly love. We rarely see them in full body. Totally. It's only in the post and the posters are in the, you know, that one shot that we actually see them.
0: Yeah. I feel like a great example is an alien, which is one of my favorite yeah. movies, how the alien looks so awesome when you get these tight shots, but then there's that one shot at the end when it's walking across the room yeah. and it just looks so ridiculous. you like that yeah. comparison. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Yeah, it's just a guy in a suit at that point.
1: I always find that charming. I like it when I can tell that it's just a guy in a suit. I'm like, oh, I bet that took a long time to get into makeup today. I hope he was able to go to the bathroom first. Uh, So I'm glad that this came up because uh, this is definitely a a piece of your expertise, which is onset practical effects and and marrying practical and visual effects still on the budget. So what are some advice that you have about like doing as much as you can practically while also still being safe and still making sure that it like looks awesome?
2: Uh, Yeah, I think that I'm really interested in um, blending visual effects and practical effects, and I think everybody is right now. That's a big portion of it. So, you know, having a a visual effects artist that is somebody that's going to fall through, and because that's ultimately where a lot of these projects Go to die independent films is just in, in the visual effects or in the edit uh just because there's momentum when you're shooting with a bunch of friends but then when you have just one guy who's doing you a favor over the course of like a couple months and it's just that becomes that favor becomes a chore so i think that being strategic about all of those blending moments and not if you know like if you have a creature that whose eyes glow and that's a visual effects thing you don't want to be you don't want to just shoot that all willy-nilly You want to make sure that you are getting maximizing those shots and being strategic about those shots. As far as like practical effects on set, you know, uh, I'm a big safety nerd as, as messy and clumsy as I am. I'm I'm definitely very aware of safety. So uh, that's some place that we don't cut corners just because Uh. I've been around too many injuries on set. So yeah, you definitely have to take your time on that space, which is, you know, time is the biggest commodity that we can we can afford on these projects. And then, yeah, like just things like fire and explosions are just not necessary anymore on indie sets. You know, you can really just do so much of that with like even the simplest visual effects. You know, if you have zero visual effects experience, you can do a YouTube tutorial and make a fire appear in a place like. With these, so uh, yeah, just don't take chances. Like we take a lot of chances in indie indie film regularly, but you know, safety is not one of those places you need to take those chances with.
1: Yeah, I think that's important. Sometimes there are no corners to cut. Sometimes you just got to do it right. Yeah. Yeah. So for for the folks who maybe aren't able to either find a great production designer in their area or just can't afford one, what are some things that you think more indie people on genre and beyond should really be thinking about when they're setting up a frame? Like, what are the production design elements that you see people missing that would not be hard to incorporate?
2: I think it has to do with you have to decide what element of realism you are uh trying to achieve okay you know and i think that that is very so these these are just choices that you have to make you know before anything else is like what is the tone and what what are we trying to achieve here is it is it camp or is it you know photorealistic and then you have to lean into either of those what what you are you can't i wouldn't i would suggest not being subtle or second guessing or even make asking those questions Making sure you ask those questions well in advance so everybody's on the same page so that if you don't have a production designer, you can communicate to your PA or your art PA, whoever is helping you out, what you're trying to achieve based on uh, that kind of information. So, yeah, I think that it's just a matter of you spending more time and trying to get an idea of what you're trying to achieve. And if you don't have a production designer or can't afford one, you can just find one of your crafty friends and be like, "All right, you've, you've leveled up. You're the production designer. This is what I. This is what I want." And people will surprise you because you know creativity is not a, an exclusive thing. It's a human. Where it's embedded into all human nature. It's
1: not industry specific. If you're a yeah, creative exactly. person in one way, you're probably going to be creative in another.
2: Yeah, I, I also think that creativity is not exclusive to anybody i think that it is what it is a a nature not a nurture thing for me for i I believe everybody has the ability even those who say i'm not creative or i have no creativity it's like if you actually ask them what is what does a room look like they can figure out that out so yeah and and at the same time i think that you can encourage people to try and envision what it's the internet is everywhere. <laughs> you know? So if you're trying to design a young girl's bedroom, trying to turn your bedroom into a teenage girl's bedroom, you can Google teenage girls' bedroom and just recreate that, you know. Mm-hmm. Google yeah. images are gonna be your best friend. So if you're not trying to make something that is uh, wildly exotic, I think that there's there's no excuse anymore.
1: That's a great point. Yeah, I will say I'm, I'm asking this question a lot from the perspective of when I teach like intro to short film, intro to web series, a thing that I see a lot from students is like they just film people against a blank white wall or like at most mm-hmm. they'll put a poster up and it's like... Mm-hmm okay, (laughs) can we think of anything more interesting than this? So something I try to emphasize is like adding depth to the frame. Like even if you're not doing a lot differently with the room than how it was originally, like just pull the couch away from the wall set us in the middle of the room with the couch in the background not like directly up against it adding texture so things to shelves versus just flat posters stuff like that you know trying to be conscious of what am I looking at versus you know we're in a room it's like okay cool we all know that we're in a room when you started filming so like what else can that give us what about this room is unique you know googling teenage girl bedroom like what are elements of that and what they tell us about the characters. I I think that a lot of people just consider their space as it's a living room. That's what I need. It's like, well, but whose living room is it? And what does that tell us about the relationship between these characters and what they prioritize and, and things like that. So that's, that's definitely the perspective I'm coming to this conversation with is like, how do I explain to students that like the space matters?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, uh, like you said, uh, having it be embedded into the character is another very important element and having that baked into the system as well. You can have, you know, even in B, uh, you know, in the script stage, you know, having descriptive elements about this, the set that they are in, you know, um, having being spending a little more time in the action section saying what the actual set looks like, what the room looks like, all that kind of stuff. So that if you were spending time on the on that in the script phase, that will help articulate that visually. And also, like I said, if you have somebody in your business department head who doesn't have a lot of experience, if you are being specific on the script level, that will help them a lot too.
1: Yeah, yeah I like grounding it in character. Like if you go to somebody's house and look around it tells you a lot about them. Like when you go to your friend's house or when you're Zooming with your friend and you can see into the background of their bedroom, like what is what you're seeing tell you about this person? Are they neat or sloppy? You know, do they like a lot of color? Are they one of those people that like frames everything or just sort of haphazardly like push pins things to the walls? Like all of those elements make up who this person is and tell a different visual story. So don't forget about that aspect of characterization when you're building your world. Yeah, definitely. Very cool. Well, Christina, did you have any other, high-level questions
0: no no questions but i really enjoyed listening <laughs> to I, it's
1: such a fun conversation Raven.
0: All yeah i love it
1: <laughs> <laughs> any any final advice that you have for the the indie filmmakers in our audience about production design about anything
2: you know i, I it has some i always just say that you got to just do it so if you do have a project that you've just been sitting on for years and years and you're just waiting for it because if you spend too much time waiting for the perfect moment to make this thing happen, then it puts way too much pressure on that specific project, especially if you're new to it and haven't done a film uh, or haven't done many short films. You got to have that time to let it, the project live and then die and suck and (laughs) <laughs> regrets and all that kind of stuff so that you can <laughs> go through that process again you know you're trying to make a uh, a film career not just trying to make a, a film and so much of a career it has ebbs and flows so just get out there and burn it and move on to the next one
1: I love that so what's next for you 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 mentioned that Joy is kind of finishing up its its festival run so what's next for Joy what's next for you
2: We're trying to do the feature route uh you know we had some some buzz with the um the film festival which is specifically for pilots and everything and and obviously that's a, a, a bigger uh, mountain to climb so we are uh moving towards the feature range there and working on a um a script for that we're also ironically enough going into the podcast space doing narrative podcasts that we've been developing that are in the horror genre uh there and then i um i have some children's stories uh children's television programs that we're developing right now too so trying to get that off the ground so yeah Different things line around. So,
1: when you say we, you're saying like your production company, or?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's catch all because each of these projects has a couple of different partners, uh, people I'm collaborating with. So, it's the royal we, I guess. uh sure. <laughs> So, but, you know, like anything I do, I, I can't do it by myself. I'm always working with other people. So, yeah, it's, it's still, we're still pushing along.
1: Well, amazing. Cool. Well, we will definitely add links and everything to the the episode notes so people can follow up with you. But thank you so much again, Raymond, for, for joining yeah, us and nerding out about art with us.
0: Art, and Yeah, creatures. absolutely.
2: Thank mm-hmm. you so much for having me.
0: Thanks so much to Kelsey Rauber for our theme music, Kaylee Brown for our podcast art, Ezra Lee for editing this episode, and to all of you for listening. Links to learn more about them and our guest are in our episode description.
1: And thank you to our Booby VIPs, who are our $10 supporters on Patreon. That's Kim Garland, Amanda Blunt, anthony epp kelsey rauber norman steinberg and brandy nicole Payne. if you want your name on that list and or you want to have access to all of our bonus resources related to each and every podcast episode we post for free you can subscribe for as little as three dollars to our patreon at patreon.com breakingoutpod
0: or join our free newsletter where we share a new creative prompt each month next episode we'll be discussing the craft of voiceover acting with special guest edward hong be sure to tune in